Great. Steve is going to share the word of God with us. Steve, over to you. Great. Morning. Um, just as we get going, um, can we try and share that video? I'll explain what it is. Um, it just occurred to me during worship that this might be fun to watch. Um, as Graham exhorted us to, to dance and to do with our seats and so on, I thought you'd like to know that um, in the last week or so, the wider family of churches that we're part of called Salt and Light um, has brought into the fold a whole new group of churches in Ethiopia. That did, we didn't have any connections in Ethiopia before, but through um, Dave Richards, who's a guy with a ministry much like Steve Thomas's, there's a whole new group of churches that's joined us now, Salt and Light Ethiopia. They are family, so that's very exciting. I thought you'd like to see how they dance. Here we go. Now, it's going to pan round in a minute, and I'd like you to spot the grandmas dancing. Here we go. Here we go. There they are. Can you see them? And I'd like to say, it's, I think that um, Graham would be quite happy if we danced like that by our chairs, wouldn't you? It's not... Um, the sound, oh, is, is it finished? There we go. Every chorus, is, there's like, I don't think I can do it. Actually, I think we need to be a lot fitter than we are. Wait for the next chorus. These are our new cousins, indeed brothers and sisters in Christ. There we go. That's how you worship the Lord. I just thought, there we go. So if you can practice through the week, um, then we can learn a little bit from other nations about how it's done. And if you want to dress up in that, um, that uniform, great, especially if you're over 50, and then you can dance up. Okay, there we go. That's enough. That's good. I just thought you'd like to see. We're part of a wider family, and we've got things to learn from them. Here we go. We'll head to our PowerPoint now. We're in a a series on... Oh, look, there's some clues all behind me. Brilliant. We're we're in a series on prayer. And um, this morning, uh, I am going to make an observation. I'm going to say four truths from the Bible which are possibly a little abstract, but no less true for being a little abstract, uh, and then land with three practical responses that we can make. And I'm saying that because if at some point you feel like I'm being a little bit too abstract, and you're like, what on earth does this mean? I want to encourage you, we will land there. But the the need to talk about some things that are simply true, though a little bit abstract, is because God wants to shift something in our thinking this morning. Believe that God's helped me to see something, the observation that I want to make in a moment, that stands against our praying, and there's something that can shift in our thinking that will then make a difference in our praying. That's what we're heading for this morning. So my observation is this. My uh, subject for this morning was prayer and action. And my observation uh, is this, that there are generally two quite opposite tendencies amongst Christians, one of which is to act without praying, and the other of which is to pray without acting. And most Christians that I speak to have a tendency to one pole or the other. There are the activists that get on with things, and only when they don't work, say, oh, did we pray about that? And there are people who will gladly spend hours in the Lord's presence, pouring out their heart and receiving the Holy Spirit and being filled up with the truth of his word, uh, uh, who don't do anything with it, practically. 
this being an evangelical church, the likelihood is, and I know it for a fact, that the greater part of us are on this side over here. Evangelical churches are known for their activism. And most of us have a tendency to just get on with stuff. And then only when it's not working, and we've tried a few things of our own devising, and someone reminds us, sometimes a child, then we pray. Why is that? And we might put that down to our particular history as a church or to personality, but it was great last week to have the opportunity to listen to wisdom about prayer from other cultures. And I think we need to recognize that this whole tendency to separate out prayer and action is something to do with Western culture. It's a peculiar problem of Western culture. You see, if you grew up in the West, then like me, you were brought up to think that there were really two very different realities. That there's the physical reality of the world around us, and then, then there's a sort of spiritual reality, which is quite different in kind. Um, it's a picture there of oil and water, which clearly don't mix. And these are the, it's a picture of how difficult it is that we find to bring, it together, bring together these two kinds of realities. Because we're brought up to believe that the physical reality of the world is a, it's a solid thing. Well, some of it's liquid and gas and the occasional emulsion and so on. But it's a, it's a physical, solid sort of a thing. And the physical world is predictable. And it makes sense to us. We can work it out. We can do science. And we can know what consequences will follow from certain actions. And we think of that as the, we describe that as the natural world. And then there's the spiritual world, which is immaterial. That is, it doesn't have physical substance. It's immaterial. It's mysterious. We don't know the end of it. From its, we can't see quite exactly how when we pray a consequence will definitely occur. There are certainties, but there's a mystery in it. It's not predictable in the way that our science can be. Whereas the physical world makes sense to us, it, the spiritual world is where we find the meaning of things. It's not void of, of meaning. It's different sort of a thing there. And we sometimes refer to it as the, the supernatural in distinction from the natural and we're brought up to see that that's how things are. I want you to notice here how the, the language that we use to describe these two things is weighted. Because generally speaking, if something's solid, that's a good thing. You can rely on something that's solid and uh, know, that, know what's going to happen. The word immaterial properly means that things don't have physical substance, but we use the word immaterial in daily life to mean things that don't matter for practical purposes. It's not necessary. It's not relevant to the task at hand. Even the word supernatural, I believe, is somewhat problematic because it makes it seem like the physical world is what's normal, and the spiritual world is somehow exceptional. I've got so much more I want to say about that. 
And the wonderful thing is, I'm going to get to say it all next Saturday. There's a day conference here on creation. Jeremy's doing the bulk of the teaching. I'm going to get to expand on that a lot more. If what I, I'm going to say some things in a minute, some biblical teachings about the way the world is. And um, I can't remember which American philosopher it is, but one of them said, every answer is the father of a whole new family of questions. So when I say some things in a minute that are truth from God's word, and maybe things that you've not quite clocked before, that's going to give you some new questions. Uh, Hopefully there'll be better questions than the ones that were previously occupying you, but there'll probably be more of them. Uh, That's why, amongst other reasons, we have a teaching day on all of this sort of stuff uh, next Saturday. If you want to know more about that, particularly talk to me or to Jeremy, and we can fill you in on what's going on. Um, I want to say to you, it's no surprise to the extent that this is how we see the world, that the physical and spiritual realities are different from each other and hard to mix, and the physical world is the natural, predictable, solid thing, and the spiritual is some kind of exceptional thing that we have to somehow chase after, and yet it remains mysterious and beyond us. No wonder we find it hard to bring together our prayers and our actions. So I want to say four things that are true in this whole area from the Bible. And each one's got a very simple scripture to go with it. In Genesis 1, the very first thing that the Bible has to say is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth which means all manner of different wonderful things. But here's one of them, that spirit is prior to matter. See, I said it'd be a little bit abstract, but we'll get there. You see, in the Bible's teaching about the physical order, it was the spiritual that came first. God, who is spirit existed before any physical object. And he caused the entire cosmos to come into being by his powerful word. That is to say, everything that exists came from the greatest of minds. Everything that exists exists came from the greatest of minds. That is, spirit comes before physics. There is no physics or chemistry or biology or engineering or any such thing aside from the mind of the almighty spirit who is God himself. That means that if anything, the spiritual reality is more real than the physical reality. It's not in any sense fluffy, uncertain, a little bit unreal, you know, only real when we're in the right kind of mood or any of those things or only real to some people. It's more real than the stones under our feet is the spirit of God who caused the cosmos to come into being. It's put away any sense that spiritual reality is somehow unreal. It's more real. Second thing, the physical world is ever tied 
to spiritual realities. In Psalm 19, in the first part of the first verse, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. You can't look upwards when you're outdoors. Uh, even if there are clouds there, there's something to be learned of the glory of God. There is an, um, a joining at the hip, an inseparability of the spiritual world and the physical world. You see the sky and you see the glory of God. Simple as that. Physical and spiritual connected and unable to be separated. This means, amongst other things, that we don't fully understand any physical phenomenon without understanding the purpose and meaning for which God intended it. Take the rainbow, of which you have a lovely picture there. You can know all about the refraction of sunlight through water droplets. And yet, if you don't truly understand, so if you don't know that the rainbow is also a sign of God's faithfulness, then you don't truly understand a rainbow. It's, it's not that a rainbow is really a load of water droplets and sunlight and refraction and the chemistry of our eyes, and that's really the rainbow. And then there's this kind of Christian idea. The reality of that rainbow is both physical and spiritual. And that spiritual reality, which finds its origin in the mind of God, who spoke all things into being, that spiritual reality is as real and strong and profound and changeless as the refraction of light. The physical world is ever tied to spiritual realities. About five years ago, scientists reported that people falling in love had higher levels of the hormone oxytocin. And so it got nicknamed the love hormone. Uh, like, if you've got that hormone, then love is... You feel love when that hormone is coursing through your veins in an increased measure. It does other things in the body as well. And research is continuing, and I'm sure that there is much more to be discovered about this amazing molecule. But when every aspect of its biochemistry is known, it will not be properly understood without recognizing the joyful reality of love itself, which is immaterial, mysterious, and profoundly meaningful. The physical world is tied to spiritual realities. There's a great book that I could recommend to you I've been reading called Recapturing the Wonder. The author is called Mike Cosper. And I want to quote what he says. If we think of facts as those measurable, verifiable ways of seeing the world, and if we think of truth as the bigger story that makes sense of them and ties them together then we might say that Western culture has been consumed for the last few hundred years with the quest for facts, but has lost sight of the truth along the way. Is it possible, he asks, that the truth of the world is something that we can't test and measure? 
Can we experience layers of experience that lie beyond our physical senses? Layers that reveal themselves in the way our hearts ache when we see beautiful things or in the powerful love and burdening we feel at the birth of a child or even in the darkness when sorrows strike. Is it possible that when beauty stops us in our tracks, the encounter is something more than sunlight and water and chemistry, something more like a love letter? The facts of rainbows don't tell us the truth of rainbows, Mike Cosper would say. And the truth, that spiritual reality, is just as real. If anything, it's more real. It's the reason the thing exists in the first place. Here's a third thing. I need to explain the picture in a moment, although some of you may have got it already. Spiritual reality holds physical reality in close embrace. Spiritual reality holds physical reality in close embrace. I showed a picture before of oil and water, two different things that it seems hard to mix together, but in the milk that, unless you're lactose intolerant, you drink every day, the oils, the lipids, and the waters in that milk are in these tiny, tiny droplets, globules of lipids that are so small they cannot be seen with the naked eye, but only with a microscope, and so much so that you think of it as one liquid. It's opaque rather than transparent because of the way that the light moves through all of that. But it's that closely bound up that you need special equipment to delve in to see the difference. It's that closely bound up that you can... It's hard to see how it's anything other than a singular reality. The scripture there, Hebrews 1 verse 3, says that Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. He sustains all things by his powerful word. That means, uh, from the Greek, all things. All things. Uh, every tiny little thing, every you know, massive nebula in space, the hairs on our head and getting smaller and smaller to all kinds of creatures. Even the fact that the molecules that make up the solid stuff around us hold together is caused in an ongoing way by God speaking, God sustaining. If God ceased to speak over his cosmos, everything would just fly apart or maybe just cease to exist. I don't know. It's beyond our understanding. But what's clear is we rely on the sustaining word of God for every breath, for every heartbeat, for everything that we are and all we will ever be. And we may sometimes be blind to God's presence, but he is never absent. He He can't be absent. It's a complete nonsense to think of God as absent from there is no godless place because there can be no place without god wouldn't be there if god were not there sustaining it there's nowhere that we go in the good times and in the dark nights at hospital bedsides he is emmanuel he is god with us wherever we may be. 
Here's the next thing. This is my longest sentence, but not, I don't think, the most complicated point. We relate, that is we, as God's people, we relate directly both to the physical world. Here we are in it, and we have bodies, and uh, we relate to the physical world. And we relate directly to the spirit, that is God, that upholds, that, sorry, that creates, upholds, and embraces intimately the physical world. That's the life we get to live. We are not only in this physical world hoping to sometimes drag God into it. We relate directly to the physical world and we relate directly to God who is the one who creates, upholds, embraces the physical world. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens... You're there. If I make my bed in the depths, that is, of the sea, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. Wherever we are in the world, wherever our work or our loves or our needs take us, whichever little bit of the physical creation we are engaging with, other people and whatever tasks lie in front of us, there God is with us. The same psalm says he hems us in behind and before. There is nowhere that we can flee from his presence. Now, sometimes we pray, do we not, for heaven, well, you might not, but it's a little, we sometimes pray, I do, for heaven to invade earth. It's like a sort of, sort of um, on steroids version of the Lord's Prayer that says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but remembering that the one to whom we're praying is the conqueror of all, and therefore we can pray, invade, come on, God, heaven, invade earth. I wonder sometimes when we pray that prayer, whether we are thinking that, you know, what's going on is that the whole earth is spinning on its axis all by itself, and we're asking God to get involved. Here we are, God, we're living on the earth, you're somewhere far off, and we feel a need for you, and since you're not here, could you come, please? And of course, the truth is that it's only God's presence that allows the earth to spin anyway. So when we pray, heaven, invade the earth, We're not asking God to take an interest in the world. The Bible tells us he's already not only taking an interest, but taking responsibility for providing for every living soul. When we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are not asking for life to become more spiritual. We're asking for a change in the existing spiritual reality. We are not asking for life to become more spiritual, but for the spiritual opposition that exists to God's kingdom to be broken and defeated in order that one kind of spiritual kingdom might be replaced by another kind of spiritual kingdom. It is not that the world carries on in some kind of secular, unspiritual way until the Spirit of God turns up. 
I hope you're getting my point. I'm trying to make it in about four different ways. That's why, all of that is why, when our Lois, who's now 11, was approaching her third birthday, and we asked her what she wanted, and she said, a rainbow, we didn't tell her to stop being silly, and we didn't buy her a plastic one. We suggested that she prayed. And pray she did. And on her third birthday, when she opened her bedroom curtains, can you guess what was there in the sky? A seagull. No, it wasn't. <laughs> there was a rainbow. She's like, look, mummy, daddy, you got me a rainbow. We're like, okay, we've got a little bit of work to do on the understanding of causality there. But God's in charge of all of it. God's in charge of all of it, and he's not far away. I hope that point's landed. I hope it makes a difference to our praying. Here's three practical things that I'd like to suggest, some practical responses to that truth. Number one, read the Bible without skepticism. Read the Bible without skepticism. C.S. Lewis used to say that for every book that you read that, is a, that has just been written, you should read two from past centuries. Because otherwise, you'll get caught up in thinking that it's today's issues that really matter and lose perspective on reality. He said, if you can't quite manage that, make sure you read at least one book from another century in between all of the modern ones that you read. There's something about stepping outside of this Western culture that we're in that helps us. And we don't actually have to go and uh, go, go to a library to find ancient Christian texts or philosophers or histories from centuries gone by. Because look, you've got one of these. Isn't that amazing? It's got 66 books in it, and they're all from like at least 1900 years ago. Isn't that amazing? So you don't actually have to do, you can just say in between each modern thing that you're reading, why not just read a book of the Bible? And the point is not just to sort of get a couple of points of inspiration, but allow their reality to shape your understanding. Don't put everything you read in the Bible through a filter of making it make sense scientifically or make sense sociologically or whatever your way of thinking is, trying to make it fit into a modern mindset. You know, when you read stories of um, you know, a boy that cast himself in the Gospels into the fire and had fits, don't go, oh, well, that's just epilepsy. When the text says he's demonically oppressed, don't do that. Well, why would you do that? Why would you assume that this kind of, um, per not perverted, but um, impoverished view of the spiritual life that characterizes the Western world gives us a particular insight into the spiritual realities described in the Bible? I mean, no sense. Let it instruct us as to how the world really is. God, I pray that you would free us from this kind of skepticism, especially the most educated here. 
who've spent longer drinking the Kool-Aid. God set us free that we might not be constrained by the education that you gave us to be a blessing. We might not be limited by the culture in which we happen to live because you've given us this countercultural, alien and yet God-breathed book to shape our thinking and give us a true understanding. God, would I pray that as we open the pages of Scripture, you would free us from thinking that those who wrote it and those who lived then would bless them just in a more primitive time and didn't see things as well as we can. Let them be our teachers. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Read the Bible without skepticism. My next point is actually three points, but it's, they hold together. Pray first. If you're one of those people who, as I described earlier, does something, and then when it doesn't work, thinks about plan B, and then plan C, and then phones a friend, uh, and then may pray about it. If you're one of those people, because you're practically minded, this is particularly for you. Um, I once heard R.T. Kendall speaking. I don't know if any of you know who he is, but uh, he's a good bloke. And uh, he made a really, I thought, telling observation that you can measure the someone's advance in the spiritual life by measuring how much time occurs between discovering a problem and praying about it. When a problem occurs, do you go through all of this stuff and eventually three months later, oh, have you prayed? Now I've discovered that the doctors don't know what to do and have been to all the appointments and they've exhausted their diagnosis, I suppose we'll pray. Do you pray after the first doctor's appointment when the GP wasn't as helpful as you'd hoped? Do you pray after 10 minutes? Do you pray straight away? Um, I need to find this on my phone briefly. Here we go. Many of you will have heard of George Whitfield. Um, I've completely lost it from my phone, so I'm not going to show it. I'll just have to remember it. George Whitfield uh, was the first of the great evangelists of the 18th century to go out preaching in the open air. That was because he was the most powerful speaker and the most offensive to the church authorities of the time and therefore got kicked out soonest. And he um, used to preach (laughs) in the churchyards of churches that wouldn't let him have the pulpit. And then one day... He felt God speaking to him about going to a place called Kingswood, where there was a coal mine just outside Bristol. And his diary says, after much prayer, he went to try, for the first time, probably in centuries, someone had just tried preaching to a crowd of people who didn't go to church outdoors. Now, when George Whitfield says, after much prayer... You need to understand, when he was a student at Pembroke College in this city, he was known for getting up in the middle of the night and going outside and kneeling on the ground in stormy, rainy weather in order to stay awake so that he could pray right through the night. Reminds me of that um, there's an Anglo-Saxon... There's an Anglo-Saxon abbot 
I lived in Lindisfarne, used to wander out in the night into the tide until it was up to his chest uh, and stay there for as long as he could bear the cold praying because it kept him awake because if he started falling over, he'd drown. (laughs) So that's the kind of guy George Whitfield was. And he says in his own journal, living by that kind of standard, after much prayer, I went. And he, he got to the top of the The coal mine, there's men coming out of the coal mine, faces blackened with coal dust. And he says, 10,000 people gathered. And by the grace of God, I was able to speak with a loud enough voice for a whole hour that they all heard me. And then a fire was lit as he spoke. And he could see these really hard working men with white gutters appearing on their faces as the Spirit of God came on them and let them know that he loved them and he had an amazing plan for their lives. And tears began to stream from their faces in their hundreds. After much prayer, we pray first and see what God will do. That's why I'm delighted with the pattern that we've inherited for our monthly street outreach, The Turning. We don't go out on a Saturday morning without spending a Friday evening in God's presence, in prayer, putting the first thing first and not acting something out without doing so. I wonder how many of our other activities we start in prayer. How is it for you? Do you start your meals with prayer? Maybe yes, except when you're in a restaurant. I don't know. Do you start your small group meetings, church meetings with prayer? Probably. Maybe not. Hopefully. Uh, Do you start your journeys with prayer for traveling mercies? If you're a student, do you start your tutorials with prayer? At least by yourself, even if others won't share it with you. What about when you go on a night out for fun? Is that your moment to start also with prayer, or is that really your moment for forgetting God for a bit? to do something more relaxing. So here's a few practical thoughts about praying first. Here's one. Stop doing things you haven't prayed about. Just stop them. Uh, At least until you've prayed about them. You know, one of the biggest dangers to my own spiritual life has been an inability to do this. And some of you will be like me. Others of you will be much more godly. But I have such a tendency to get on with things that seem obvious to me and not to pray about it first. And then, surprise, surprise, I find myself living an over-busy life in which I don't feel as fruitful as I might be, reminding myself that Jesus said that his yoke for us was easy and his burden was light and I should come to him for rest. And yet I'm busy and tired Let's pray before we start things. And if you're doing things that are wearing you out, then with whatever capacity you have to stop them, if it's your work, you may have to take a day or two's annual leave to achieve this. I don't know. But in as much as it's your capacity to do so, stop it. Stop it and pray and see what God has to say. Here's another thing. This is a bit more corporate. 
We quite often sit down and agree things with each other. This happens in church life. It happens in families. It happens in workplaces. We agree. We we plan something together. This is what we're going to do. And we form an agreement together that this is what life will be like. Let's make sure that whenever we agree to a plan, we agree it in prayer too. Say, God, this is what we believe. This is what we're doing. Lord, we commit it to you. We're agreeing together in your presence that this is the right thing. If there's anything that's amiss in it, tell us, bring us up short, and make sure that we stay in your will. And here's a third thing. Continue praying until you know what to do. And what I mean by this is, having started out with prayer, sometimes you've prayed for a bit, and it's still not clear quite what you should do, at which point uh, we go, oh, well, that's... God's not really helping. I'll just get on with it. You're all looking like this never happens in your lives. I know it does. Um, You go, well, I think I've prayed enough now. I'm still not clear. And what I'm talking about here is when, when you haven't got peace of mind and you haven't got conviction and clarity and you're not sure that the next thing is what God's got for you and faced with the choice of praying a bit more, or just getting on with it. You just get on with it. It's like enough with the prayer. I know you do this. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite stories that helps me avoid this is from the life of Smith Wigglesworth, who was an early uh, Pentecostal pioneer, really, in the UK. I just want to read something to you from his biography. Um, it was a point at which he was personally feeling the challenge to be a witness to Christ uh, more than he had been. And so it says this, on one occasion, this will sound familiar to some of us who've been trying to do this kind of thing, on one occasion he went into the city centre, this is in Bradford where he lived, uh, and he felt constrained to witness to someone about Jesus. So he asked God to direct him to the person of his choice. It was a very busy road and scores of people were passing every minute, but Wigglesworth wouldn't move until he felt the Spirit of God quickening him. Um, Wigglesworth was not blessed with a large supply of patience. He was, in fact, a very busy businessman, and he became irritated by the delay of an hour and a half. Note. Hour and a half. Busy, impatient man. Hour and a half. So he impatiently prayed, Lord, I don't have much time to waste. Please show me the man. I don't know whether that's a good prayer or... It probably depends what was in his heart at that point, whether that was a good prayer or not. But anyway, God is gracious. And soon after that prayer, he noticed, this is in the 1920s, a horse-drawn cart sandwiched between several other vehicles in the main thoroughfare. And he knew, it's a spiritual insight, he knew that the driver was his man. So undeterred by the heavy traffic, he leapt through... Uh, what was there, and quickly came alongside the man and his cart. And he leapt onto the moving cart and took a seat beside the driver. And without any of the niceties of an introduction, because you can see what kind of character he was, he launched into the plan of God's salvation for this man's life. Uh, The man growled in response, why don't you go about your own business? Why should you pick me out and talk to me? Smith Wigglesworth wondered if he'd made a mistake and silently said another prayer, is this the right man, Lord? Assured 
that this was the right man, he continued to talk and plead with him to turn to Christ. The man started to cry. And Smith knew that he and knew that God had softened the man's heart. So believing his work was done, he jumped from the cart and went on his way. (laughs) Uh, Three weeks later, Wigglesworth's mum told him this remarkable story. The previous evening, she had been to the home of a man who was dying. He'd been confined to his bed for three weeks. She asked the man if he would like someone to pray for him, And then he told her of a strange encounter of a man with a man he'd had in the city center. He said, the last time I was out of my house, a young man got into my cart and spoke to me about Jesus. I was very rough with him, but he was very persistent. Anyhow, God convicted me of my sins and saved me. And the driver died that night. That inspires me. I hope it inspires you to wait, wait for God to speak and do what he says. If an impatient man like Smith Wigglesworth can wait for an hour and a half, I believe that many more of us could. So read the Bible without putting it through a modern mangle. Pray first. And here's the third thing. Practice speaking words of power. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, God's words are powerful, living and active. God spoke the whole cosmos into being, Genesis tells us, and he upholds it by his word. And that means when we speak God's words, they have power. There's lots of instances of this in the Bible, different sorts of things. I think of Samuel telling David that he would be king. Something changed in David. And he became the man that could be king and then became king according to the word of God. God's word changes people. Think of Jesus saying to the storm, peace, be still. And it was still. God's word changes physical realities, not least in healing. And Think of Peter saying to the lame man in the temple gate, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And At his word, which was the word of God, the man got up, didn't just walk, but ran around, leaping like an Ethiopian. (laughs) In Ezekiel, we read of the prophet being told to prophesy to the bones. And as he spoke God's word to the bones, there's a rattling sound. And they came together and they joined together. And he's told, prophesy to the breath. And he prophesies and a breath comes in them and there's an army that stands up. What a wonderful picture. Speaking God's word. There are words that we have that are not everyday. They are everyday words. That's the wrong thing to say. But there there are some words we have. Oh, it's raining outside. Or, um, oh, I don't know. Um, We're having beef for lunch. Or there's those kinds of words. And then there are other words that are God's words and they have power. When we say to someone, I forgive you, There is power in what is a gospel declaration. And something is changed in the spiritual reality of this world. I say, well, how on earth is that? And we might, in our modern mindset, try to put that through the filter of psychology. Go, ah, well, when you say that kind of word, it leads to these kind of feelings, and this kind of cognitive thing happens, and then, of course, they feel better. 
Well, you know what? That is probably all true and all going on. But there's a spiritual reality in which the words of God have powerful effects and bring about change. That's why when we pray for people to be healed, we don't just say, oh, Lord, please heal them. It's like we declare God's healing over people. We say, the Lord is your healer. And, and Jesus took injury at the cross that by his injuries, we'd be healed. This is true. And we're going to speak it in Jesus' name. You know, you can take someone and be playing with them in a swimming pool and stick them under the water and bring them back up. It is not a baptism. But when you do that and you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you pull them back out, they are changed. There's power in God's word. When a couple stand to get married and they say, I take you to be my lawful wedded, whichever one it is. Something changes and two become one. There are many words like these in our lives. Things that we can speak. You know, again, just going back to the turning again for a minute. When we have said to people, hi, my name's Steve. Hi, great. Um, Can I tell you a couple of things? God loves you. He's got an amazing plan for your life. Some people are not interested. And then there, there are some people for whom that word of power does its work. And they're like, is that true? They know it's true. They don't even ask the question. Holy Spirit comes and does something and tears can fall from people's eyes, not covered in coal dust, probably mascara running. I want to encourage you, discover these words of power. In our praying, let's pray God's word and expect it to effect spiritual change that then touches into every part of our everyday lives, spiritual, physical, and all of that together. That's the essence of blessing people. Say, I bless you in the name of Jesus. We have such a power to speak goodness into other people's lives. I've run over. I knew I was going to. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry. And uh, I'd like just, we're not going to, I don't think we're going to sing another song, are we? Because I think I've gone far too long. What I'd like to suggest is that as we finish, Al might have something else to say in a minute, but just have a quick look at that list of things. Um, we probably all need to do all of them. Uh, why not just ask God to help you say, which one of those things, which one of those things is the right thing for you to hold in mind this week? Which one of those things is the right thing for you to hold in mind this week? And I pray in Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide each one of us? And might a response to these truths change our weeks such that we pray like we've never prayed before with greater effects than we've ever known and with more consistency than we've ever known? Amen.